This was a serious business, thanks to Roger Hill's policy. I felt that the ordinary audience for school shows was worse than none at all because it consisted of parents and friends who were completely uncritical. So we organized the Todd Troopers and started taking shows out of town. We would rent the Goodman Theater in Chicago or use some of the suburban movie houses in the area. There was nothing makeshift about the productions or the presentation. The good people of Woodstock or the Goodman's Theatre subscribers could count themselves lucky to catch Orson's production of The Physician in Spite of Himself. There was, too, a Julius Caesar, the entry for the Goodman Theatre Amateur Drama League. Fifteen-year-old Orson played both Antony and Cassius. Feeling the increasing loss of his favourite son, Dick Wells cruelly punished his eldest one. Loathing his sullen, uncommunicative namesake, who had continued drifting aimlessly, wandering the country, working as a casual labourer, Dick Wells had conspired with Dr. Bernstein to have Richard certified insane. From the age of twenty-five, he was incarcerated for ten years in a lunatic asylum, along with four thousand fellow inmates in varying degrees of mental distress, during which time he saw no member of his family except his cousin Irene Lefko appointed guardian in the absence of Richard's father. There is no evidence of his having harmed anyone or caused any breach of the peace. When he was finally released, he followed a slightly erratic career as a social worker, popping up in his brother's life from time to time. Richard Jr. had been expelled from Todd. Dick Wells might have hoped that Orson would be. Treated with contempt when he attempted to visit Orson there, he resorted more and more to the barroom. Installed in the Bismarck Hotel in Chicago, denied the presence of his son. He died on the 28th of December, 1930. Dick's will had left it to Orson to choose his own guardian. He had immediately asked Skipper, wanting, obviously, to confirm his membership of that family. Skipper persuaded him that he must choose Morris Bernstein. So on the 1st of January, 1931, Morris Bernstein became Orson Welles' legal guardian. Moving in with him, Wells was scarcely entering a haven of peace and light. Bernstein was now married to a remarkable woman, Edith Mason, one of the most distinguished American singers of her day, an outstanding actress and possessor of a voice whose silvery brilliance can be clearly heard on her surviving recordings. Returning to Todd, Orson flung himself into his final production, Richard III. The boy was intoxicated with Shakespeare. In his passion, he had overstuffed the goose. The show ran for three and a half hours and had to be savagely cut short before the opening. Before he left Todd, there was one thing to be done, one of the school's hallowed rituals. Each boy, on becoming a senior, was given a sled, which he kept as long as he was there. When he left, he handed it over to an upcoming senior. Solemnly, this is what he did in May 1931. As far as we know, It was not named Rosebud. Billboard for May 1931 carried the following announcement. Orson Welles, stock characters, heavies, juveniles, or as cast. Young, excellent appearance, quick, sure study, lots of pep, experience, and ability. Close in Chicago early in June, and one place in good stock company for remainder of season. Salary according to late date of opening and business conditions. Photos on request. To no avail. We may assume that Morris Bernstein was unaware of Orson's plans for himself. Like many a parent or guardian before him, Dada's suggestion was that Orson should first become qualified academically, and then, with the safety net underneath him, that is the standard phrase, should he still feel the need to act, he could go ahead and give it a try. Clearly this was not going to wash with Orson. His appetite for the theatre raging, and all his juices at full flood, after an unbroken sequence of triumphant productions at Todd. 
Dick Wells had made his will in 1927. It contains a startlingly brutal paragraph about his son Richard, who was reduced to inheriting one-seventh of the estate which should be administered to him until his thirty-fifth birthday. It was never paid to him, in fact. The rest went to Orson, likewise being administered to him until his twenty-fifth birthday. Orson's portion was $37,500, worth approximately ten times the amount at current rates. Morris Bernstein, as trustee, was responsible for the administration of the estate. Richard, incarcerated in an asylum, was allowed niggardly sums for clothing and upkeep. Orson hardly found it easier to extract money for his needs. There invariably hovers over any financial dealing concerning Dr. Bernstein a question mark. There is no doubt of his love for Orson, but there is a possibility that he tried to cheat him, too. As for his future, the goal was always Harvard or Cornell. The most Orson could hope to do was to stave off the hour at which he would be obliged to enroll.